listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the things I've tried to do recently is look very carefully at other teachers. What is it that other teachers, past and present, have done in relationship to their sanghas to help support that which needs no support? The infinite needs no support. So this gets very tricky, kind of, we call it in educational terms, pedagogy. How do you actually teach this stuff when you can't really teach it? There's nothing to teach, literally. There's no thing to teach. It's what is without quality, without name, without form. How do you teach that which is beyond name and form to no one. There's no one to teach, ultimately. In the conventional sense, of course, we have all of us and we have all these people. I have myself, I have my wife, I have everyone to teach. Yet, at the ultimate level, there's no one to teach. So I'm reading this book. It's actually a reread. I don't know if any of you have ever tried this, but just stop buying books and go back to what you started reading and just kind of go through. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens when we do that. Suddenly the Hardy Boys have taken on a whole new meaning for me. Uh, I read Jaws again recently, the Peter Benchley, kind of in honor of his, his death uh, not too long ago, and that I'd pick it up. Man, what a fun read that was. And all I remember was in fourth grade when I snuck it out of my parents' library and read it, uh, how scared I got. And now it was fun. And so that was a fascinating little thing for me to, to watch how fear can actually blossom over time into something that's not so, it's just not so scary anymore. Not because it's just words on a page, but because there's a deepening to our life. And as we deepen this life of ours, the things that used to really get under our skin or get in our heads or toxify our hearts or souls, they don't quite have the same effect, yet we're still engaged. So anyway, I'm reading this, uh, this book again. Uh, it's Conversations with uh, a 20th century sage. I guess he died in 1950. Uh, his name is Sri Ramana Maharshi. And he is more or less in the Vedanta Hindu lineage, although he didn't leave any per se, any lineage holders. He just 
kind of hung out in this uh, in this room is the way the way I, I pictured it in my head. Um, and people would show up and ask questions all day. He'd sleep there, you know. It's just kind of his whole world was just this expression of awakening. And what I found so hilarious is I'm reading this thing. When I first read it, I guess I was just out of college, right, right around 1988 or something like that. I remember, I remember diligently like going through every single page and thinking that this guy is so tweaked. But a lot of people that I really respect think he's great, so I'm just going to keep reading it. And I finally got to the last page and you know, I said, yeah, tweaked. This guy's nuts. Totally different experience now. And what I've noticed is how positively relentless this guy was on his students. Absolutely relentless in one specific area. And you can just watch it in all these dialogues. He keeps going right back to the source. Who is it that is asking the question? Who is it that is asking the question? Who are you? Who are you? What is it that you call you? And just continually leaning in that direction. And every once in a while, you see a person that, you know, pretty much falls to their knees and has an aha moment. But that's the job of each of us. Whether we're a teacher in a teaching capacity or we're as a student, it's continually be reflecting on that core question. Who am I? Who am I? What am I? Are you just your name? Are you just your physical form? Are you just your family? Are you just your identities? Are you just a daughter, a mother, a son, a wife, a husband? Is that all? Or are you simply a shimmering, radiant, joyous expanse of the universe continually. If we can get into that space where it's not just hearing it from me or reading it on a page or hearing it from somebody else, it's not just hearing, it's actually realizing, oh goodness, I am one with the all. Really, 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 really. And there's a felt sense of that knowing. If we can relax in that space and let it transform us slowly but surely and keep reminding ourselves that that's really from whence we all came, Our activity then changes. Our activity becomes spirit-infused. Our activity becomes compassion. The stillness brings about the realization, which brings about realized activity. 
and realized activity is a gift that continually expresses itself as an appropriate response to whatever arises. So with that in mind, whatever arises, um, I think it was Ajahn Shah who said something like, I'm going to paraphrase, he who has not really begun to cry has not really begun to meditate. And this, I think, is such a gift to recognize that our sitting actually disallows for numbness. It disallows for hiding. It disallows for anything other than facing the white-hot fire of what is from a totally undefended position. when we sit still and we recognize that it's all the deep singularity and that we are an expression of that deep singularity, boundaries kind of start to become somewhat meaningless. I mean, they're there, but they're kind of meaningless. Every single thing is an expression of the infinite, including this thing I call me, including these things I call mine, including you and yours. It's still all really part of the deep singularity. So as those boundaries begin to fall down, there isn't really anything defending us. That which typically has had the role of defending us, the boundary, the wall, has begun to crumble, has begun to kind of fall apart. Or sometimes we say these veils have been torn away or have fallen away to expose what's real. And that process is an amazing adjustment. It takes a tremendous amount of will to let go like that. It's available to everybody. And miraculously, there's more of that will available than there is resistance available to ego. Because the will to surrender comes from surrender itself, comes from the infinite in spades. The will to resist also comes from the infinite, but it is filtered by that in us which is contracted. And as a result, it's not quite as strong. So what do we do? To use Richard Bach's metaphor again in the uh, book Illusions, we let go of the rock. We get hammered by the stream against the rocks you know, that are nearby initially. But if we can withstand that, if we can cry deeply and meet that 
tenderness. Meet that in us which is raw or exposed and undefended. And we meet it with our total presence that is actually sourced from the infinite with an intentionality to awaken for the benefit of everybody. We then begin to float. We then begin to perceive all things differently. Everything changes here. That which we feel may be indeed more intense, but we have the presence to cope with it. We have an equanimity that has been engendered by this process, been supported by this process. No matter what hits us, we can see it for what it is, accept it for what it is, and then act accordingly for what it is. That's an appropriate response. That's Buddha. So with this in mind, I think it can become so helpful to meet whatever it is that brings us close to tears, to meet whatever it is that brings us right into the heart of our personal resistance, whatever it is that brings us into intensity, into non-peace, whatever it is that brings us there, rather than resisting, we just accept and meet it. We meet it with open ears, open eyes, open heart. We don't push it away. We don't indulge it. We don't seek it out, try to pull it closer. We just meet it when it arises. And when that happens, when we meet it with our full attention, it falls away, just like everything else, just like every thought that you had as you were sitting here in meditation. Thought arises, huh, eventually goes away. A feeling arises, huh, and then eventually goes away. We practice it in a meditative experience and then we bring that into the world and practice the letting the world arise and meeting it with our full attention huh and then watching it fall away our grief our fear our anger our pain all of that stuff is basically just evaluation on the part of that in us which feels separate, on that which we call the ego. Its job is to evaluate. I like this, I don't like that. More of this, less of that. It's always making that move. When in fact that in us which is truly connected deeply with the infinite it's the slightest contraction of the infinite 
is that in us which can observe. So instead of evaluation, there is observation. And in that observation, that observer is totally free of any thought, of any compulsion, of any feeling, of any pain, of any bliss, of anything at all that arises in experience. It is free of it. It can choose. It's totally free functioning. Integrating that into that in us which is confined creates an expansion that everyone can just feel who comes near you. And what it does is it allows us to open for the sake of the all, for the sake of everyone. Observation as opposed to evaluation or what we might call discriminating awareness as opposed to judgment. So when we live from that place of observation, we create more room for love, more room for tenderness, for joy, for wisdom, for compassion. There's an opening to the all, from the all, through the all, with the all, as the all. Let's meet there. I probably won't be very clear in what I want to comment about because I'm tired, but I am uh, sitting as a juror in a jury trial that is uh, going on now already for the second week. It'll be two more weeks. And what you said about observation rather than judgment and just being there with what it is, that opening the door to a, to, a, to being able to act um, with equanimity, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, in this trial, as in so many trials, of course, you, you, you hear two different versions of the truth. And the job is to be able to somehow try to get to the truth in order to come out with a judge, with a just verdict. Easier said than done. And I think that what you just, what you just taught us tonight is so extremely helpful in sitting there and listening without the interference of our prejudices and our um, ego and our ways of seeing the world and just 
letting the information come without any obstacles on the way. I just listening to you was thinking if I could just maintain that attitude of the observer and stay there. Maybe I could be I would be helpful in, in coming to a you know some kind of resolution that is fair. So I hope I can remember tomorrow and the next two weeks what you have said and just sit there as best I can observing and maybe get closer to being able to cry. Mm -hmm. And laugh. Laugh. Yeah. The truth will reveal itself in all cases when observation informs our listening, our seeing, our speaking, our feeling. We develop radical honesty with what's showing up. It's unfiltered, right? Right. And the truth will reveal itself, especially when you're in the jury room and you have to come up with a verdict I love that film, 12 Angry Men, where he so skillfully is able to just question, question, I wonder, as opposed to I know. One is observational, the other is evaluative. Thank you, Michael. Oh, you're very welcome. You talked about that you're not really meditating until you want to cry. Um, I mean, sometimes I get goosebumps, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking I'm getting that goosebump because I'm thinking about something, mm -hmm. which I'm just supposed to let pass. Right. The kind of crying that I'm talking about, I want to make sure that that I at least communicate it clearly enough. It's it's not like you haven't begun meditating until you cry. So make sure you cry. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's not it at all. It's that the the words were symbolic. If you're not feeling, really feeling, to the point of shudder knees weaken, you know, you feel it right here, then it's most likely an intellectual exercise. And that'll precisely get you as far as an enlightened ego can get. All right. But if we allow ourselves to have a felt sense of the experience we're having right now, and get very close to that, and continually observe it, Rather than evaluating it, we just observe it and keep observing it. What happens is we develop an oceanic expanse of reaction. Anything can happen as opposed to 
the confined, regimented, compartmentalized realities that we have built for ourselves and conditioned for ourselves over years and years and years and years. So it's more a pointer than it is a demand. You don't have to cry. You may never cry as a, you know, as a sitter or meditator or practitioner. It's not the crying that's important. It's the ability to feel that deeply that perhaps tears arise. But this feeling deeply, you know, I mean, I've heard that when you sit, when you sit and meditate for, you know, as you get deeper and deeper into meditation practice, things from your subconscious will, you know, basically become conscious. Mm -hmm. Like things that may hurt in the past or is this, is this rush of feeling from, you know, something negative from the subconscious coming to the forefront or is it a feeling like a tingling of the, a tingling feeling of the universe? It's always a tingling feeling of the universe. Then it gets reinterpreted as, oh, this is from my past. Maybe this is a glorious moment from my past. Maybe this is a horrific moment from my past, but it's always from the universe. Okay. And what this practice does is it allows us to create a stability. That stability allows for us to meet whatever gets thrown our way with a steadiness. And that steadiness allows our responses to be much more profound instead of being contracted responses that come from me versus situation. It comes from an open openness, which is I am the fundamental reality of all situations. So my recommendation is to just let go of the clinging, or excuse me, let go of the, uh, let go of the tingling. Doesn't mean don't feel it. it, means let go of it. If tears come, let go of them too. Let go, let go, let go, let go. You know, you let go of everything. So whatever you feel, just feel it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With total openness, total honesty. Just, wow. And then see what's next. Feel what's next. Hear what's next. See what's next. And then do that again and again and again and again. And that allows everything to be a direct path to the realization spirit. Everything. Everything becomes your teacher. Everything becomes your sangha. Everything becomes the dharma. We just create more opportunities for it to kind of just flood us. Um, I'm having this same thing I talked about last week, only when I first started meditating, it felt expansive and opening up, and I, and now I feel like I'm contracting, and I don't know what's going on, and it's like, it really feels upsetting. Mm -hmm. and, and yet I observe that I have more ability to be in a, for example, an upsetting meeting this afternoon and 
not need to talk or get involved, which is good. Yeah. But I also feel really like I'm contracting some way. Yeah. And I just feel, it feels horrible. The recoil. Yeah. Right. Totally natural. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going backwards. What happened? No, of course. Of course. Because it's like, uh, I've also referred to this as the rubber band effect. (laughs) And what happens is we take the rubber band of awareness and we stretch it, right? And then what invariably happens is we we recognize, oh, look at all this spaciousness, (laughs) right? But then we let go, okay? Uh, The practice becomes deeper. We kind of have this sense of, oh, here's how it's supposed to be. Boom, we let go of the rubber band and it snaps back, okay? Might have moved maybe a little bit. But the trick with continued practice is to pull the rubber band and then watch the other stuff follow. So there's less tension, right? Mm. All right? It's always going to recoil. You're always going to have a situation where the minute that expanse kind of comes in and it seeps into your awareness, that in you, which has been conditioned your whole life, is going to say, this is great. This is wonderful. Uh-oh. <laughs> Now what? Um, uh, I'm sleepy. Yes. Shut down. Shut down. You know? The manager within begins to just try to wrestle control back from... uh, I've talked about it before. The uh, CEO of our consciousness begins to go nuts because it can't control the board anymore. The board has gone off, you know? (laughs) They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) <laughs> right so we have this situation where the recoil is just it's positively positively awful but what do we do we keep going because squeezing yourself through this uh little you know uh eye of the needle is the work it is the work it's where you shed everything you don't need okay and in that process, what goes through, okay, it's quite a beautiful, beautiful expanse. And then that, that runs into usually something else. And then and we keep doing this. So we practice going through the eye of the needle continually. And where this ends up taking us is to a spaciousness beyond words. We can point to it but you have to walk that path until there's no you left. The you that is left is a miraculously profound being whose name is your name, who wears your clothes, drives your car, but is integrated into this world from a totally different space. And it takes so much courage and it takes stillness and that's all. <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>